Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. In a few minutes, I'll be talking to Dennis Staunton in London about Theresa May's attempt today to relaunch her faltering premiership. But we're going first to Washington, where, even by the standards of the controversy-ridden Trump presidency, today, Tuesday, has been an extraordinary day. Suzanne Lynch joins me from there. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, hi, how are you? Suzanne, since the weekend, there has been renewed focus on the alleged links between the Kremlin and Donald Trump's election campaign, a matter which is the subject of several investigations. Can you give us a quick recap first on what has brought this story back into the news? Yes, well, since Donald Trump arrived back in Washington, D.C. on Saturday night after his trip to Hamburg, uh, the Russian issue has really been reignited here, uh, mainly due to a story that was published in the New York Times at the weekend, uh, which claimed that Donald Trump Jr., the president's eldest son, had met with a Russian lawyer at a meeting in Trump Tower back in June last year. Uh, Now, this report um, prompted uh, Mr. Trump Jr. to issue a statement um, saying, yes, the meeting had taken place, uh, but it was about other issues, it was about adoption and US sanctions on certain um, Russian individuals. Uh, but within 24 hours, he was forced to issue another statement saying that, in fact, he had been, uh, it had been indicated to him that there may have been information that he was going to secure from this meeting about uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, now, it took a further twist then on late on Monday night when the New York Times published a report claiming uh, to have seen an email that was sent to Mr. Trump Jr. ahead of the meeting, which essentially promised incriminating uh, information about the Clinton campaign. And then really an extraordinary move on Tuesday, Donald Trump took it, uh, the decision to publish those emails on Twitter and uh, he published the full kind of chain of emails between himself and Rob Goldstone, a Russian publicist uh, that led this meeting. And um, Suzanne, just before uh, he released those emails, of course, the New York Times had uh, got sight of the emails and they were able to confirm the fact that Trump was told not before he met this Russian lawyer, he was told not only that she would have incriminating evidence about Hillary Clinton, but he was also told that this was Russian government material. That was a very significant step forward in the story, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think this is really the significance. I mean, in the first instance, the whole, the fact that the meeting took place is very significant because it's the first reported meeting between the Trump campaign and a, a Russian uh, official at this time. But as you say, yes, I mean, this, the, the significance here is that um, Donald Trump Jr. knew that the source of this information was actually uh, connected to the Russian government. Uh, in the emails that Donald Trump Jr. published on Tuesday, um, it shows uh, the uh, Mr. Goldstone saying that the information they would supri- supply was part of Russia and its government support for Trump. So we see uh, now an admission, if you like, by Donald Trump Jr. that he knew that the information he was going to get uh, was coming from the Russian government and was part of their campaign to support his father in the in the election campaign. And and the, the Mr. Goldstone you mentioned there was a publicist too who had an association with the Trumps going back to the Miss Universe competition in, in Moscow. And, and he was he was the intermediary between the Trumps who set up the meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and this Russian lawyer called uh, N- Natalia Veselnitskaya um, in June. Just to, just to clarify Mr. Goldstone's role mm. in this. How, how significant, Suzanne, do you, do you regard yes. these, these latest developments? Well, I think um, there are a number of issues here. Um, This is a very serious development uh, for Donald Trump. Um, There's been a lot of debate here about the legality of this. 
uh, has Donald Trump Jr. done anything criminal? Uh, he himself has said uh, numerous times that it's, it's quite normal uh, for someone to meet somebody uh, who are, who's offering information about a political opponent. But I think the crucial difference this time is that it's a foreign individual and uh, it looks now like a foreign government. Uh, so that would be prohibited uh, under federal law. Um, and then secondly, this is now going to very much be the focus or be part of the ongoing investigation that's been led by Robert Mueller, the special counsel, into alleged collusion between the Trump administration uh, and Russia. Um, so whether there is something specific that emerges from this in the next, say, weeks and months is one thing. But for, for sure, uh, it is definitely going to form part of the special counsel investigation that's looming and that is gathering pace all the time in the background here in Washington. Finally, Suzanne, why do you think um, Donald Trump Jr. chose to release these emails? Was it simply that he knew the New York Times really had had, had sight of everything and it, it was a kind of a desperate move to look transparent? Or um, why did he do it? Because the, the, the emails are quite incriminating of himself, aren't they? Mm, I mean, the suspicion would be that the New York Times was uh, poised to print the emails themselves and that uh, the Trump administration would have been faced with situation that they were yet again waking up to another news story about uh, controversy surrounding them. So in that sense, he, he moved first. Um, but as you say there, I mean, really the main message that comes from this email is that it, it, it confirms that he did in fact know this before he went to the meeting. So I think, I mean, there's a benign view of this, if you like, would be that, and, and indeed in terms of Trump's connections generally with Russia, is is a kind of inexperience and naivety that uh, Donald Trump Jr. actually thought that this was okay to go and uh, meet this person, particularly when he knew that they were involved, there was an involvement by the Russian government. Um, maybe that just shows incompetence, political inexperience, maybe. But uh, the reality now is for Donald Trump Jr., his father and the Trump administration, it's now emerged as a very, very serious issue. Uh, collusion with a foreign government is a very serious uh, case. It, it could be something... Uh, that's, as I say, um, discovered in the in the Mueller investigation, which then could uh, would be turned over to Congress and could ultimately lead to impeachment, for example. Uh, so, yes, I mean, there does seem to be a kind of naivety, um, a lack of understanding of the norms of political rule, rulemaking, I suppose. Um, but as I say, whatever the reason behind it, it does look like it. they've now entered a new kind of phase in this whole controversy. Okay, well, Suzanne, it's a very fast-moving story. Uh, it's, it's, indeed, it's our second conversation today on the, on, the, on the podcast. We had to scrap the earlier one. Things have, have changed, have, have moved along so fast, and no doubt you'll be following this story on, on irishtimes.com. Thanks a lot for that. British Prime Minister Theresa May made a speech today about her determination to bring about a fairer society, which was touted in advance as a bid to relaunch her premiership. And though the result of last month's general election was not what I wanted... Those defining beliefs remain. My commitment to change in Britain is undimmed. My belief in the potential of the British people and what we can achieve together as a nation remains steadfast. And the determination... Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is on the line. Dennis, did Britain get a new Prime Minister today or just a slightly more determined or slightly softer version of the old one? No, it got neither, actually. Uh, it got almost nothing at all. This speech was trailed since Sunday as being kind of a relaunch. Uh, it's, it, on Thursday, she'll have been in office for a year. And the idea was that uh, she was going to make it clear that uh, she was still committed to the things she said on her way into Downing Street a year ago, that she wanted to make Britain a fairer society and all the various things she was going to do. But also somehow that she still had lead in her pencil and still had ink in her pen and she was full of vigour and... Uh, 
know, that she basically wasn't dead yet. And then she was going to also make this, uh, you know, cast this olive branch across to the opposition saying, you know, uh, when I started, I obviously had a majority. Now things have changed since the election. And so I want to uh, hear everybody's ideas and work with them. But oddly enough, when she made her speech, which was in the context of the launch of this report on uh, on, on work and on the new uh, forms of work that we have nowadays, uh, she actually said less than she was uh, trailed by Downing Street to, to be uh, about to say about really her premiership and about this whole business of working across uh, the aisle. And I think one reason for that is that uh, having trailed this stuff, it got a rather uh, frosty response from both her own benches and from the opposition. So uh, Jeremy Corbyn just sneered at it, basically said, if you've run out of ideas, we've got loads of them in the Labour manifesto, and I'll send you a copy if you want. And her own uh, people said, uh, what are you talking about cooperating with this man over there? You've, you know, we've been denouncing him for the last uh, whatever number of months. So, so I think that all kind of fell on its face. So what we were left with then at the end was really the same old Theresa May just kind of struggling on with uh, very little authority and nothing really structurally has changed since uh, she lost the general election effectively. Now you mentioned the word vigour there. She did talk about the need for renewed courage and vigour. She said things like we can be timid or we can be bold. I noticed there was nothing there about strong and stable leadership. Have they become the most discredited words in the British political lexicon? Yeah, they're gone. You can't say those anymore. And, uh, you know, in fact, I think there's uh, uh, somebody saw uh, on her Twitter feed, on her Twitter identity or whatever it's called, on her account, uh, that they have a picture of her with strong and stable behind it. And that just kind of looks like a kind of a rather uh, ironic joke now. But uh, no, I mean, I think that, you know, everybody uh, in Westminster is talking about when she will go. Uh, It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when she uh, is, you know, she's there for as long as her MPs want her to stay there. And the only reason that she's still there is because they're not agreed on who should succeed her. And they're afraid of what uh, leadership contests might do, that it might make their situation worse because it would expose their divisions on Europe, on Brexit and tear them apart. And it might actually precipitate a general election, which many of them believe they would lose and uh, that they'd end up with even fewer seats than they have now. And Jeremy Corbyn would become prime minister. And that's something they regard as horrifying, both for themselves and for the country. So given all of that background, Dennis, I'm not going to ask you to um, predict how long she'll stay in office, because as you know, we haven't a great record in the podcast um, when it comes to making predictions. Yes. But, but what um, what is the general feeling, say, in, in political and media circles about how long she will last? I mean, do they expect she will see it through to the end of the Brexit negotiations and, and then step down? Well, there are a few views of this. I mean, I, there are quite a few Conservative MPs who would say that they would like her to be able to stay on until the uh, the Brexit negotiations, or at least the Article 50 negotiations are finished. So, say, the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, that they'd like her to see those through because, uh, and then they could get rid of her and put in somebody else. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, it's hard to see how uh, there will be no events that could derail her. And, uh, you know, what we've seen, uh, one thing we've learned about uh, Theresa May over the last few months is she's not very quick on her feet. And so, for example, her response to the Grenfell Tower fire, uh, it it seemed uh, to have struck the wrong note. 
And it's partly just because she doesn't think very quickly. And we don't know what's going to happen next, whether it's going to be a political crisis, an economic one or whatever. And then the other problem is, of course, that the Brexit negotiations are becoming more difficult, are becoming more complex. And now Britain is having to face quite serious decisions about where it goes. She set out a plan for Brexit which was really very hard line. It said, we're going to get out of the single market, we're going to get out of the customs union, and we will no longer uh, be subject to decisions made by the European Court of Justice. What you saw here this week, yesterday, for example, her, effectively her deputy prime minister, uh, Damien Green, he said, well, um, of course, during a transitional arrangement, during the, the few years immediately after we leave, then maybe the European Court of Justice could hold sway. And so you're starting to see uh, a softening of this approach by some of her ministers, but then others are sticking to a hard line. And so what you could see is that uh, you know events would push her out of office before even uh, many of her MPs are ready to, for, to see her go. But the other thing was that actually somebody at this uh, event this morning, at her speech this morning, where she really did perform very poorly and she kind of was forgetting people's names as she was answering the question. She just seemed kind of tired and a bit defeated. And, uh, and and one of my colleagues said uh, today, well, you know, it really wouldn't be a surprise if suddenly in a few weeks you just, you know, decided to pack it in, that uh, she just personally, uh, you know, goes off on her holidays and just decides, I actually can't stand this. Because it, it's hard to see how there can be any joy in it for her, knowing that there's kind of no way back to, uh, you know, to, to the happy position she found herself in before the election when she appeared to be the master of all she surveyed. And nobody thinks that she's going to lead the Conservatives into the next election. So in answer to your question, I don't know when she's going to go. Some would like her to stay for a longer time, but either events or herself could make that happen much more quickly. And different when she does step down, who, who are now the primary candidates to, to replace her? And, and please don't say Boris Johnson or, or, or David Davis for that matter. Well, I'm afraid both of those are certainly in the mix. So I would say that if you look at... Uh, uh, if you look at the rankings uh, in terms of the people uh, that I've spoken about, uh, there are three in the cabinet that people talk about in particular. One is David Davis, who's the Brexit secretary. His advantage, he's got two real advantages. One is that uh, he is regarded as being uh, a true believer by the Eurosceptics. And so there's a sense that he, uh, having been a Brexiteer all his life, that he would actually be able to make the necessary compromises and persuade. Uh, his fellow Brexiteers that he wasn't selling the pass. So uh, that's one of his advantages. The other is that he grew up uh, on a council estate, the son of a single mother, uh, and raised by a single mother. And he's got the working class credentials that, uh, that some of the Conservatives think that they need to take on Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. That's his advantage. Uh, he's uh, One of his disadvantages is that he's 68, which is the same age as Jeremy Corbyn, and some of them think they need to go for somebody younger. Uh, on the other side of the Brexit debate would be the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, uh, who's known as Spreadsheet Phil because uh, he's very much uh, the accountant. He's rather uh, a grey and soulless figure. And that, of course, is his major disadvantage. His advantage would be that he is regarded as a safe pair of hands by uh, the sort of old guard in uh, the Conservative Party who would be close to business, close to the city of London. Uh, but he would be somebody who would be much more ready to make compromises uh, to make sure that Brexit doesn't damage the economy too much. And so as far as he's concerned, the economy must come before, say, issues like controlling immigration when you're 
planning how to leave. And then uh, there's always Boris Johnson, who does appeal to a lot of conservative members because... Uh, because he's kind of uh, he's showbiz, he's box office, he's and they feel that you know you've got a populist in Jeremy Corbyn who is able to capture the public imagination, and that they need somebody uh, who's also able to you know get a crowd going, get people excited, and that Boris Johnson has that. Of course, he has all the other advantages or disadvantages that everybody's familiar with, added to which is the fact that he's regarded as having been a bit of a bumbling mess in his current job as uh, foreign secretary. He certainly hasn't had any uh, notable achievements there, and he has had a few embarrassments. So uh, so those would be the, the three uh, front-running names right now, but then you never know who's going to pop up and uh, and who's going to emerge once the contest actually gets underway. Okay. And Dennis, before I um, let you go, you were discussing there the disarray um uh, within the British government about Brexit and, and uh, how to approach the negotiations now already underway with the EU. What's your sense of the the actual live possibility now increasing that Brexit might never happen, as Vince Cable of the, the Lib Dems kind of suggested the, the other day? Well, some people do talk about it, and you have you, you do find now, in a way that you didn't before the, uh, the election, you find people at Westminster actually speaking about this as a real possibility. I don't actually see how that that happens. Um, I don't see how, uh, I can't uh, you know, imagine right now the circumstances in which Britain would say, we've changed our minds, we'd like to uh, withdraw our triggering of Article 50, and we'd like to stay in the European Union. And the European Union would say, okay, it could happen. I just don't see the political circumstances right now. What I think might be more likely is that you have a slowed down Brexit, so that you have you agree to a long transitional phase during which an awful lot of stuff remains the same. <clears throat> and then it could be that as the transitional phase goes on, that you extend it or that during the course of that, you uh, agree to maintain some of the uh, some of the existing structures. But Britain would still have left the European Union. It would still have left the European Council, the European Parliament. It would still have left all of the decision making bodies of the European Union. And uh, and I don't right now see how that doesn't happen. And I think it's for the moment it's really a question of the kind of Brexit and whether it's a fast or a slow Brexit uh, or indeed a disorderly Brexit that we have. But you're quite right. Some people are talking about the idea that there may be no Brexit after all. And one thing I suppose that we can be sure about, uh, despite our poor record of predictions, is that in the current or political climate, lots of things that we don't expect uh, have happened and many more that we don't expect could yet happen in the months ahead. Dennis, thank you. That's it for this week. For these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.